I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This time, a former Suns player who you might remember as T-Rex. More video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's mugshot, and we are learning a lot more about the charges. How did you handle being in prison, and how did your family, how did your kids handle it? By my junior year, you know, I just basically stopped going to class and I started dealing coke. My teenage sons dropped me off at the front gate of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute. I had a decision in that moment, literally, between living and dying, and I chose running. This is Charges, with me, Rex Chapman. My guest today is not a household name as an athlete like some of our previous guests, but I guarantee that he will run right into your hearts during this episode. Charlie Engel is known as Running Man. He is the closest example I can think of to being a real-life Forrest Gump if you threw him feet first into a requiem for a dream reality. Ten years of doing drugs in the streets around America, 30-plus years sober, 3,000 miles running across America for mental health advocacy, 4,500 miles running across the Sahara Desert, one documentary executive produced and narrated by Matt Damon, $6 million plus raised as co-founder for Water.org for clean water projects in Africa, 
and one mistake in judgment that led to 16 months in federal prison. This is Charges. Charges. Welcome to Charges. I'm your host, Rex Chapman. I hate running. In fact, in basketball, it's punishment. You mess up, you run. You have a bad attitude, you run. You didn't run fast enough, you run. I'm more of a brisk walker. God, I can't imagine it doing it for fun. And yet, our guest today, well, he'll tell you he doesn't necessarily do it for fun either, but that doesn't stop him from doing it. A lot of it, all on his own, no coach forcing him to do it. But Charlie Engel doesn't just compete as a runner. He's an ultra marathon runner. That means he runs anywhere from 35 to 100 miles. He also has been using running to help keep him sober and away from addiction for almost 30 years now. I'd like to think that recovery, just like running, is all about putting one foot ahead of the other over and over and over again. Let's find out from a man who'd know it best. Charlie, thanks for being here, buddy. Man, I, that was the best intro I've ever had. And, and actually, you'd be, you'd be surprised to learn that I don't like running that much either. <laughs> I, I definitely am. Honestly, you know, basketball is what I grew up playing. And, uh, you know, everything, even punishment off the floor. Like if you got in trouble, it didn't go to class. Up, oh, You're up at 6 a.m. running, which, you know, for a basketball player, I could run sprints all day long. You know, stop, start, stop, start. The mindset, unbelievable. I'm just, I'm dying to find out more. You know, anyway. I mean, in, in short, and I know we'll we'll talk more about it, but you know, running for me is a running for me is about where running takes me. It's about you know, it's a vehicle to not just reach um, certain places within myself and learn more about myself. It's it's literally about cultural exploration. You know, I've I've run in about 50 countries at this point, and look, man, most of the world is on foot. You know, we live in a, a very privileged bubble here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, and I visit a lot of places where nobody has a car and everybody's on foot. And by being on foot with them, it creates a whole different dynamic and, and one that I seek out all the time. So running as much as anything is just a way for me to see the world in slow motion because I am slow. <laughs> That's amazing. And I can't wait to get into all of that. Where'd you grow up, Charlie? And what was that? it like at that time for you? I grew up here in North Carolina for the most part and high school here and, you know, played six sports and made some decent grades. And my, my parents were 19 years old. So, uh, when I was born and so I, I had a pretty, uh, bohemian upbringing in the sixties. What were your teenage years like? And looking back, did you have any vices that, you know, maybe led you down the wrong path or could have? Yeah. You know, I, I as a kid, my mom was perpetually in grad school, so she was a, a writer, and a, you know, a, basically she wrote plays primarily. Uh, there's a chapter in my book that I, I sort of jokingly call my mother the lesbian, who you know she was married a couple of times, but let's just say those were loose arrangements. Okay, and uh, an only child, and you know, and there were. You know, there were like cast parties and whatever in my house all the time, every you said, night. You said it was a bohemian upbringing, yeah. very bohemian. and you know, a lot of times there wasn't a lot of food or, or anything else in the fridge, and I would wander around as a 9 or 10-year-old and finish off 
people's beers and a little bit of wine. And I actually say, you know, in the book, and I, I think it's so true, is like alcohol planted a flag in my brain when I was a kid and like claimed that space for its own. Damn. And, you know, and it took a while before it manifested, but like I knew, I sort of knew as a young kid that it was going to be my, you know, something I could always count on. Like, that's how I felt. Like, this makes me feel warm and safe, and, like, I'm going to use that when I need it. Damn. Damn. You know, I, I looking back, I had addiction in my family, but it wasn't until I went to rehab that I started hearing, you know, I knew what my issues were, but hearing people with alcohol issues and their stories. And, you know, when you when you started talking, it takes me right back there because you just don't know what people are going through. You don't know how a certain drug or uh, this, this alcohol or that alcohol will affect you particularly. Well, and I'm a fourth generation addict, you know, I mean, I'm, <laughs> you know, I've got plenty of it in my family and genetics are a bitch. And, you know, you just like with any other disease, you, it's pretty tough to escape genetics a lot of times. And yeah, and that in combination with environment, of course, and, and some less than good choices on my part. And, you know, I, I moved in with my dad and I, I sort of went the opposite direction and I became trying to get, you know, some love and attention from my father, which, you know, took me many years to figure out that was never going to happen um, no matter what I achieved. I went the opposite direction. I played sports and I you know, dated a few cheerleaders and made good grades and early acceptance to Carolina. And I show up, <laughs> I show up at UNC as a 17 year old freshman in 1980, you know, I'm going to play football and <laughs> all this. And it took about three days. It, I, I fully expected there to be a banner on my dorm that said, Hey, welcome Charlie. <laughs> like, we're so glad you're here. We can start our college experience now. And uh, it took like three days to figure out that I was unbelievably average. And, you know, and, and I, what I figured out very quickly is I was an all American, don't forget 1980, um, you could still drink as an 18 year old in North Carolina. So I turned 18 about a month after I went to college and I took full advantage and you know, I figured out that I was an all-American first-team drinker, and I could just—I literally could. I, from the very beginning, I could just drink more than anybody else, and unfortunately, that became, you know, kind of a you know part of my identity, and that's the way it worked. What were your addictions? Uh, when did they start? Was it right around uh, that time? Yeah, you know, and, and look, my involvement with, um, first of all, I should say too, like I should have run track. I, there's only a few regrets I have in my life, and it probably wouldn't have changed things. You know, I think my path was <laughs> genetically set, and I think I probably would have found the same problems, if not sooner than later. But, you know, when I got to college and I, I realized very I broke my ankle playing basketball like the first week I was there. And, um, you know, I started drinking and cocaine was absolutely a ubiquitous drug on campus in the 80s. I mean, I, I think it probably still is to a certain degree, but not like it was in the 80s. Right. I mean, even while you were there in Kentucky, I mean, you just... And as a young person and a college student, you don't actually realize that what you're doing is illegal 
<laughs> yeah. Because when everyone around you is doing it too, it just doesn't like feel that way. Pretty quickly, I went from, you know, the first time, second time really that I tried Coke, it's like, a, a, you know, a light went off in my head and it said, okay, I finally found the thing that's going to make me, you know, invincible and oh, I'm going to, you know, cure cancer and uh, make my dad happy and make straight A's and, oh, give me another line and uh, we'll keep talking about it. And, you know, I do think that's that's definitely where it started. Thanks to, quite honestly, thanks to JV Basketball, you know, I, I sort of hung on for a couple of years and managed to not flunk out. But by my junior year, you know, I just basically stopped going to class and I started dealing, I was in a fraternity and I started dealing Coke and not, be, you know, certainly not to make money, just simply so that I could, you know, it's an expensive drug and and I just wanted to make sure that I had enough to do for myself. And, you know, that led me down a certain path. Do you know, have you heard of Chris Heron? Well, Chris is the reason I'm on here. Really? Uh, Chris, I know Chris and I know his story and what an, I mean, I consider him, I, he doesn't even know it, but I consider him a mentor from afar. Same. And, and, but it reminded me, because when I was talking with Chris, I was... And yes, cocaine was everywhere in the 80s, um, every party, every everything. And I was always so afraid. And mainly, I felt like I would, from what my friends said, I would either just love it or it would kill me just straight away and I'd have a heart attack. But what I found interesting with Chris was his description. I said, well, what's it like? You know, and he said, for me, he said, you know, I would open up and talk about things I wouldn't normally talk about and feel like I had the whole world figured out. And then, of course, I'd wake up in the morning and would barely remember or just want to forget what I had talked about. So I find that fascinating, Charlie. It's, a, it's yeah, I mean, what he said. And and yeah, you know, you got these big ideas. And I mean, maybe the difference between me and Chris is... Um, I just never, you know, I never did wake up from a cocaine binge because I just never went to sleep. You know, I was yeah. two or three days at a time, always dictated by how much money or drugs I had. And after I, you know, flunked out and left college, uh, you know, it wasn't uncommon for there to be four or five or six day binges. Um, and it went from, you know, Coke to crack, which was much easier to get. And especially in the, in the eighties and that's a leap though, um, right? You that's know, a leap. I never wanted to do that. I was working in Denver. I'll never forget it. And I was, uh, you know, several years, I was probably 24 and I was working there and I went down, you know, my thing is I'd go into a town and I'd, I'd go to a bar and I'd be like, Hey, where do you have fun around here? And they'd say, well, you go here and you go here, but be sure you stay away from Colfax, you know, <laughs> don't go to that neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, well, just so I don't go down there, where is that? <laughs> you know, and of course I would drive straight yeah. there. And anybody who knows Denver, you know, there's a certain part of Colfax as a, a pretty rough spot. And, and, um, uh, you know, that's where I would go. And I, I had this binge there that, uh, you know, after about five days, I'd run out of money and the, the dealer I was using stole my car. Um, because of course, drug dealers can be very inconsiderate and, uh, 
you know, and I literally, they'd stolen my jacket and it's snowing and I leave this dumpy ass motel and I'm walking down Colfax and I literally see my car down a road and I, it's all, it's running. I can see smoke coming out the tailpipe and I, I run to my car and I get in and I'm like, just, I'm blown away. I'm getting my car. I get in and pull out and drive around the block and I hear this sound in the back seat you know, and I turn around and there's like a 12-month-old baby strapped into the back seat of the car. And of course, I, you know, drove around the block and I come back up to the house where the car had been and there's a woman frantically waving her arms out in the street. And, you know, and I literally, I just pulled up. She looked at me, I looked at her, she opened the back door, she unstrapped her baby and took the baby out and because she knew the deal and I knew the deal. And, you know, and I drove away. And I mean, but that is the kind of craziness that I put myself into almost constantly. Stealing your own car back. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, and the crazy thing is I never got in trouble back then. And I, you know... That's almost another, we could do a whole show on the reason for that. But the reason is, you know, of course, I was a still a pretty clean cut white guy driving a, a Toyota 4Runner and nobody ever stopped me, you know, and I mean, literally in years, no one, despite the fact that I deserved all kinds of DUIs and everything else back in the day, you know, I didn't get stopped back then and you know, I look back on those days and those experiences as probably the most, you know, formative in of my life. And some negative things, but of course, uh, in fact, like all lessons, <laughs> some really positive things came out of it. And some advocacy and some understanding of uh, kind of the real world. Man. What's so unique about the timeline of Charlie Engel is that he spent his young adult years as a traveling salesman before becoming a world-class athlete. Not exactly a story that we've heard before. Frankly, Charlie and the millions that he's helped through his foundation are fortunate that he even survived his downward spiral that ensued all across America. So, Charlie, what, what was your turning point uh, in the early 90s? What were you doing and what happened that made you go, oh, shit, you know, this is really bad? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and during those years, and it's basically a decade of pretty hardcore use, you know, I made sure that I was always the top salesman. You know, I had a lot of geographics, as we call them in recovery, where I would move to a new town, Seattle, LA, San Francisco, Atlanta. I mean, I, I made the rounds and for six months, I'd get a job I'd I'd be the top salesman. I would kick ass and get a girlfriend and then decide, hey, you know, I'm doing great. I deserve to have a beer or whatever. And even though I'd never had one beer ever in my life without having all of them. And, uh, you know, and this path often led me to want to quit. Yeah, I, I always made a joke about it. I said, you know, quitting's easy. I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> it's just the starting up again. I, yeah. I went to rehab. I went to uh, church. I went to, uh, I saw a shaman. If I could have found a witch doctor, I would have done that. Like, I mean, I, I felt like I had tried everything 
And in when I was 29 years old, my first son was born, and Brett uh, was going to be my savior. You know, I thought that finally, okay, you know, surely I can stay sober for my son, right? Because uh, this person, you know, holding this little baby and feeling the feelings I had for him. And I know you have kids, so I know you know what I'm talking about, you know, and you're, you're like, this is, as an addict, I actually thought I was incredibly broken and completely undeserving of love or incapable of giving love. And all of a sudden that all changed with this little boy. And you know, for the first time in my adult life, I kind of had, I had hope and I had strength. And two months later, <laughs> I, you know, I'm in Wichita, Kansas, and inexplicably, I end up in the worst neighborhood in town. And I spend six days smoking crack and drinking. And that binge ended with me sitting on the ground outside a $15 a night motel room that I couldn't pay for anymore. And I'm handcuffed behind my back and the police are searching my car and there's three bullet holes in the car and you know and those were meant for me like they weren't shooting at my car and you know and I'm watching this cop actually search around the driver's seat and like he reaches under the driver's seat and he pulls out a pipe a glass pipe and he turns around looks at me and like shakes his head and any rational moderately sane person would have been like oh shit you know i'm in some serious trouble like this is going to be bad and instead all i could think was so that's where that was <laughs> like i i've been looking for that pipe for two days you know it's like <laughs> how did that cop find it in like five minutes you know and 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 then my next thought's like, I wonder if there's anything left in there. And, just, are you Columbo? What right. the hell? And, and you know, I look, man, I know you have the same thought. You you can't stay in the darkness. You have to make fun of this stuff yeah. and of ourselves in these situations. But the important thing is in that moment, the after six days of not sleeping and all the other stuff that goes along with it, you know, I had the clearest thought that I'd ever had. And it was simply, nobody's coming to save you. Your son can't save you. Your dad can't save you. Your wife can't save you. Your job can't save you. Like, until you make the decision that you want to be saved, like, there's just no way it's ever going to happen. And, you know, and I realized I, I had a decision in that moment, literally, between living and dying, and, and I chose running. <laughs> you know, and wow. I went to an AA meeting that night, and it's the first one I'd ever gone to that I actually, like... Was that you your know, lowest was, moment? Uh, oh, God, you know, Sitting yeah. there handcuffed, yeah. okay. Lowest yeah. and highest, right? Yeah, because, yeah, right. Because for a change, I, I no longer felt the... Yeah, the pressure of it all. And I'm look, man, I'm not a religious person. I didn't grow up in a church or anything like that. But, you know, I, I mean, the only church I went to was with my grandparents, and it was Southern Baptist. And I was, I was pretty sure at the age of like five that I was going to hell already. So it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was pointless. But, but in that moment, I actually said a prayer that, you know, wasn't a, um, Santa Claus prayer. You know, it wasn't right. it wasn't the typical prayer of like if you'll just get me out of this then I will fill in the blank. You know, it was just simply I don't want to feel like this anymore. 
And, you know, and I went to a meeting, I went to an AA meeting that night, I got up the next morning and I put on my running shoes and that was almost 29 years ago and I haven't stopped since. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How does one stay sober for 30 days coming from where you were, let alone 30 years? Uh, were there any moments where you almost caved? Have you ever relapsed? You know, from that day, so I went to treatment as a 26-year-old, and I stayed sober for about six months, and I relapsed, you know, for right. two more years How old at that were you? point. So, and that was when I was 26. And okay. then at 29, Young. you know, when I got sober this time, um, I certainly had close calls, and a couple of them, 
one that you can relate to very much was, uh, <laughs> and just as a tease, because I'm sure we're going to get there, you know, I, I spent some time on federal holiday in sobriety. And just before I went to prison, I had surgery on my knee. And because I, I needed, it's just meniscus surgery. It wasn't that big a deal, but you know, my friend picked up a big bottle of, you know, I don't know, Vicodin or Oxy. I don't even remember what it was now, but, you know, and I'm staying at his house and there's a six pack in the fridge. And I, I had a little bit of time with, you know, both of those things sitting on the counter in front of me. But, um, but to your question, the first 30 days, um, it's funny. You made me think it's a story I hadn't told in years, and it, it, it's a short one. But I got a sponsor. I, I finally followed some of the suggestions, and I got a sponsor. Dude was in his seventies, been sober over forty years, and I, in typical fashion, I'm like, John, you've been sober forty years. How? How? Like, how is that possible? Is there a secret? He's like, Yeah, there is a secret. Come to the meeting tonight, like thirty minutes early. And I'm going to tell you the secret. I'm like, shit, that's fantastic. Thank you. This is amazing. <laughs> I show up 30 minutes early. He's like, I said, okay, can we talk now? He's like, yeah, you know, do me a favor. See those coffee pots over there? Go make like five pots of coffee and then we'll talk. And of course, it took me 30 minutes to make the five pots of coffee. There's the meeting. I come up to him after the meeting. I'm like, John, can we talk now? He's like, I tell you what, I got to go right now, but show up 30 minutes tomorrow, 30 minutes early tomorrow, <laughs> and you can see where this is going. And it took me like three or four days to catch on because I'm not all that bright. It was the first and greatest lesson that I ever had in sobriety, and it, and it fits for the rest of life. And that's that if you want to get out of your own problems, serve somebody else, you know, be of service in some way, small, you know, none of the other people in that meeting knew that I was making coffee. Nobody thanked me. And it was like, you know, the first time in my life that I sort of did, I mean, it sounds silly in a way, but that I did something small and selfless and didn't expect to be congratulated for doing it somehow or thanked. And it, and it felt great. And that it turned out to be the secret, you know, it, and I did it for 30 days and I loved it. And it, it taught me, I think, the greatest lesson that I still use today. All right. Think of this, an expedition so extreme it had never been attempted. That is until now. And one of the three to conquer this feat is Greensboro's Charlie Engel. It's going to be a very busy weekend for ultra marathon runner Charlie Engel. In fact, the next month and a half will be kind of busy since he plans to use the time to run from San Francisco to New York City. It took more than 4,300-mile 4, run through Africa's Sahara Desert for professional runner Charlie Engel to realize that there was money to be made in the athletic skincare market. Film star Matt Damon and Oscar winner James Mull recorded Engel's trek through the Sahara to raise awareness about the need for drinkable water in Africa in their documentary, Running the Sahara. How'd you start competing? I mean, come on, you're running. How'd you start competing in running? I mean, because in the intro, yeah. it's just pure punishment uh, to me. No way yeah. I'd sign up <laughs> to do it as a primary competitive thing. I mean, what? Yeah, be careful what you say, Rex, because now you're in you're in you're in my orbit now. So you're Whoa. we're going to be having an offline conversation about exactly how you're going to challenge yourself next. But uh, <laughs> no, but I I 
I did love the feeling of, you know what I love about still running a marathon? And I've probably run more than 200 marathons. And I, I like the feeling of standing on a start line. Sometimes it's 100 people. Sometimes it's 50,000 people. And being surrounded by uh, fellowship and community, it's you know not the same with uh, 12-step recovery or whatever type of recovery a person does. But you don't know. The beautiful thing about running is the guy next to you, you don't know if he's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a janitor at the local high school. And it doesn't matter because either one of them is probably going to kick my ass. And... You know, and there's a beauty to being having a shared shared suffering is actually the best. And that's why 12-step recovery works. It's why organized running works because we we like to go out and sweat and suffer with other people. It's it's human nature. It makes us feel connected. And you know, I spent a few years trying to break three hours in a marathon, which which made me like moderately fast, but nowhere near like elite level. I mean, were you maniacal about it? I mean, was, I was. it something? Yeah, I bet. I bet. I was. And I made myself miserable for a while because I, I, I like five races in a row. I ran like 301, 302. And and in perfect fashion, my son, this is a funny story. My my son, who is about two years old, you know, I ran the San Diego Marathon. I ran 301 again, and the race is over, and I've got him on my shoulders. And I'm, I'm complaining to my wife about, my first wife, about um, not breaking three. You know, the wind was in my face and some bullshit. And... My son is like tapping me on the head. You know how they do when you're, they're sitting on your shoulders and it's like, Dad, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he's like, Why didn't you just run a little bit faster? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, You know, that's a good idea. But it, but what it really did was remind me that I was actually ruining my own experience by trying to put, you know, a measure of success on it. And Look, I mean, the short version of my running career, just so people know if they care, is, you know, I I learned a lot in those first 30 marathons. And what it really taught me was that I wanted to see just how far I could go. You know, basically, if I learned this lesson from running the marathon, what lesson could I learn running a 50 miler or 100 miler? Or I started running and actually winning races across the Gobi Desert in China, across the jungles of Vietnam and Fiji. And um, I ran across, you know, Ecuador, the mountain ranges and climbed, you know, Mount McKinley and a bunch of volcanoes in Ecuador. And uh, all of that led me in this, you know, I was on a weird path of, uh, both in my business life too. Uh, at that time, I and this is the early two thousands. I was now sober about ten years, and and I became the senior producer for a show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition on ABC. You know, which most people, you know, what a watched. life, man! What a life! Yeah, it was a top show on TV for a while, and you know, and I I worked started working on the pilot on that show, worked for a few years, and um, was doing these races all over the world, and. I did a race in the Amazon jungle in 2005 and a guy just, I'd never met him before. He blurts out this idea. He's like, Hey, I wonder if anybody's ever run across the Sahara desert, like the whole Sahara desert. 
And I, I looked at him and I said, well, that's a dumb idea. Like you'd have to be, you'd have to be an idiot to do that, you know? And, and of course, being the idiot I am, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I went home and I found out no one, go figure, had ever run all the way across the Sahara. And firsts in the adventure world are really hard to come by. Like there's very few things that somebody hasn't done. And I began to tell people I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. And I, I mean, I owe all this to sobriety and, and it was audacious. But, you know, I finally, I think my friend got tired of hearing me talk about it and he introduced me to a big Hollywood director. Um, I was sort of, you know, on the fringes of that world with the TV show. And um, he had won the Academy Award for Best Documentary a few years earlier. So I tell him my idea and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And he calls me a week later and he's like, hey, I just hung up with Matt Damon and Matt would like to executive produce this project and he wants to be the narrator. Like, would that be okay with you? And, and I, I, dead, I deadpan because I like to think that I'm funny. And I, I, like, I paused and I said, you know, I, God, I was really hoping for somebody better. But yeah, I guess Matt Damon will be fine. <laughs> Uh, and you know, and like a year and a half later, I found myself at the coast of Senegal in West Africa, you know, right at the Atlantic Ocean in Senegal. And I'm getting ready with two teammates. Um, one of them is the guy that told, you know, sort of mentioned this bad idea to begin with. I, and I always say, you know, words said to us by a stranger can sometimes change like the entire course of our lives. And, you know, and we ended up running. I ran two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off. And, um, you know, be, we became the first people in history, the only up to this point, to run all the way across the Sahara, almost 5,000 miles across the Sahara and, you know, 150-degree ground temperatures and you know, mostly deep sand. And it was, it was a crazy, uh, life-changing experience. Yeah. I can't even fathom. I mean, the endurance part where did you always have that? Did you have the endurance as a kid when you were running? You just, you could run forever. I did. I really did. I mean, it was a, and I have, I've worked from time to time with a, I'm not actually even plugging the company, but there's a company called Inside Tracker and they, they do these blood tests, which test certain markers. And I did come to find out a couple of years, just a couple of years ago though, that I, I do actually have a genetic marker that is considered like the endurance gene. Um, but I mean, look, dude, I could do Coke for six days without even taking a, <laughs> yeah. without even taking a nap. So there's nothing there. you know, this is... This yeah. was child's play. <laughs> How many countries uh, did you run through? Uh, what did you see, for better or worse, that still stays with you to this day? Yeah, so the I've run in more than 50, but on the Sahara run, that was six countries, including like, you know, Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt. And, you know, the, the most beautiful, that run was 2007, so that's been a little while now, but the most amazing thing about that run was it was still at a time where not everybody had a cell phone, and um, so we would run into these little villages, you know, in the, in the middle of the desert, and they don't know we're coming, 
every kid in the village comes out and, uh, you know, half of them, of course, I always laugh. They all have a, you know, Chicago Bulls or a, or a Jordan t-shirt <laughs> on, amazing. which just cracks me up because, you know, they're, it's just everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, but they would just run. They would, and I'm talking like from five years to 12 years old, they'd run sometimes five or 10 kilometers out into the desert and they're just happy. Just the joy that they have of this weird thing of three white guys running through their village. And then they just like, then they just kind of wave and turn around and leave. And um, I sort of said this at the beginning, but one of the things that strikes me is that even well-meaning tourists very often um, sequester themselves in their car, you know, so they'll drive into that same village maybe, but they're in a car, which separates you from the people. And I always tell people like, that's fine to have a car. I realize not everybody wants to run across the desert, but before you get into the village, like in Africa or South America, get out of your car like a half mile before you get into the village and just walk in and notice the difference People don't come at you with their hands out. They don't like, you know, we're the ones that create the uh, sort of dynamic of, you know, people coming at us and like asking for whatever um, because we put ourselves above them. And, and that's been the greatest gift of my running life is to be able to just be a cultural explorer and to see really remote places on the planet that no you know you just don't get to see and you know you have to be willing to put yourself into uh um i certainly spent 10 years putting myself in really dangerous bad situations and to think that i wouldn't do that as a sober person would be crazy so well put be curious right be curious that's all yeah um running across the desert what are the challenges during the day and nighttime of being <laughs> in a desolate desert man yeah many um logistics were were so complicated but i mean we started the run and it was 140 150 degree ground temperatures you know the ambient temperature probably you know 120 or so but like you know it was it was hot and you can plan all you want on the drawing board you know it's like drawing a cup a game plan <laughs> you draw up a game plan in a game, right? And it doesn't really take into account the other team like having the best night of their life. And, uh, you know, the desert, I always say that, especially with Africa, you know, Africa makes the rules. And within a week of starting that expedition, we had run out of food. We've run out of water. It's 150 degree ground. My two teammates both have IVs every day and we've covered about half the distance we need to. And this is an expensive project. You know, we, there's a lot of money invested and I was worried the producers were going to pull the plug quite frankly, because we were not doing well at this point. And interestingly, what I recognized at that point, I wasn't even thinking about this, but, um, I was going about it all wrong, right? I was the expedition leader and this was my project, but I was so, I felt so much pressure to be successful and success meant getting to the other side of the desert. I was so focused on that that I forgot the lessons I had learned in sobriety. And by this time I was 15 years sober. 
And that lesson is quite simply, you know, the mantra, the one day at a time mantra that we all know. But the point is the only miles that I could actually run were the ones right in front of me. And I needed to stop worrying about the next country, the next day, the next week, and focus on what was happening right now. And I woke up like on day eight, and all I thought about was running a marathon before lunch. And I took a little break, and then I got up, and all I thought about was running a second marathon before dinner. And at the end of that second marathon, I put my little thin foam mat down on the desert, and I, I laid there, and I stared up at a billion stars because there, there wasn't a single electric light within 500 miles. And, and I just gave thanks to the universe for giving me the opportunity to be alive and suffering. <laughs> yeah. And Beautiful. in that one day at a time, you know, way, we started to make progress and we made our way across the desert and it, you know, and again, it was an experience that changed my life, but the metaphors are pretty much they're endless because the idea of just focusing, the idea of like I had a plan every day, Rex, I was a leader. I'd get up at four o'clock and I would write my plan in my little book. We're going to go to this village. We're going to cover this many miles. We're going to do this. I went back at the end of the expedition. Out of 111 days, I think like on five days, it went exactly as I wrote it down. <laughs> on the other 106, it went from like a little bit wrong to completely going to hell. But... <laughs> We made it. And it is that it's that idea of continuous forward motion. If you just keep moving and use the experience that you've had in life, people quit marathons. I, I love this example. We always hear about hitting the wall, right? Well, the same is true in addiction recovery or in, and I know you relate to all of this, when we hit a real low spot, our mind tells us that we're going to feel this badly for the rest of our lives. Yeah. You know, you have a big argument with your spouse and it's like, well, this relationship is going to feel just like this forever. Or or we want to have a drink or do a drug or whatever. Like we, that in that moment, that's what we want. And it's because, you know, life is at a low point right now and it's always going to be this way. But experience tells us if we just let that pass by, the next day we'll wake up and, and you know, all the problems won't be gone, but the perspective will be different. Yes, yes, trust the process. One man couldn't quite fathom Charlie's success. Robert Nordlander is an agent at the IRS who has what some folks think is a peculiar way of choosing his targets. The New York Times reports that Nordlander told a grand jury that if he sees someone driving a fancy car, he might check into their finances to see if they can really afford it, even if there's no evidence that they can't. The Times also reported that Norlander testified to the grand jury that he just couldn't figure out how a guy like Charlie Engel could possibly afford to train for running across continents. You know this is charges, so uh, we need to talk about your indiscretions that you did go to prison for. Tell me uh, about how you found yourself under investigation and then ultimately convicted for mortgage fraud. Yeah, what a crazy... I mean, I, I still am... I, I still I'm saying that my to you, and I feel, I feel bad even asking, because I know how... It, you know, I know how when people ask me about, you know, the Apple Store, immediately I go, God, I can't believe that was me. 
Well, when I, I mean, look, I'm lucky enough, even at my age, almost 59, to still have sponsors for running and things like that. And I have these conversations all the time. And I, I say to them <laughs> up front, I'm like, look, all I got to say is if you don't know everything about my background, Google it. It's on my website. Like you can yeah. go to my website and read all about what happened to me. Like you read my book because I don't want you to come back to me later and say, oh, well, we, we didn't know this part of your background and we can't do business with you somehow. But, you know, first of all, the irony of going through 10 years of, of street level addiction and all of the uh, inherently illegal things that I did. <laughs> Um, now, and I'm not implying, I mean, this country puts way too many people who have a drug problem in prison when they should be going to treatment. That's a subject for another day. But um, in my case, I escaped pretty much all penalties during my 10 years of addiction. And so the Sahara put, kind of put me on the map. You know, I told you I got some good media and all of that. And there was... <laughs> I'm living in small town, North Carolina, and there was one single IRS agent in my town in North Carolina that saw the movie Running the Sahara, and he was not impressed with my running or with my philanthropy or anything else. And on that, literally, Rex, from that alone, he just decided he wanted to see how a runner could afford to go run across the Sahara Desert. I always say it's weird that I, apparently he'd never heard of Matt Damon because, like, <laughs> I didn't pay for it. Right. But this led to uh, him opening an investigation into my taxes. And I ended up going to trial. Um, he ends up, like, sending in a um, undercover, a good-looking woman to come knock on my door. And she's moving. I'm using air quotes for people mm -hmm. just listening. Moving into my building, and she wants to know if I'm a runner. And... I fall for all of this and yeah. because I'm a guy and because <laughs> you're a dummy. Yeah, I'm stupid. And and you know, and so um you know, all there's dumpster diving, they're tapping phones. Wow. It's the weirdest thing. And just so people have perspective, this is two thousand nine and ultimately two thousand ten when I'm arrested. But all right, so I'm out running errands one day in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I come back to my condo, and I get out of the car, and like six armed federal agents come rushing towards me, and they handcuff me, and they put me in a, you know, in a police car, and, and take me downtown, and I spend the night there, and I don't actually know, I'm not told anything at this point, and this is this couldn't be any more out of the blue. I mean, I'm now like 19 years clean and sober, and mm -hmm. and the next morning I'm handed a big stack of papers. And long story short, I am being charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. Overstating and for, it from two from 2005, a stated income. I'm a borrower. I'm not a, like a real estate person or anything else. I mean, I was, I'd been making enough money that every couple of years I'd buy a property, fix it up, hold on to it, sell it, just like everybody else. And especially in those days, you know, I mean, basically the joke was if, if you had a pulse, you could get a loan. Right. But I become the only person in the United States at that point actually being charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I can be sentenced to federal prison for 20 years. 
And this isn't like, I'm not here to like try to bash the feds or whatever, but you know, the fact of the matter is they pretty much only charge people that they are certain they can win. You know, they have a 99.6% success rate with prosecutions and about 98% of people take plea deals. And to be honest, I wasn't, I just wasn't going to take one because I sound like a, a weird broken record for guys that go to prison, but I didn't do what I was being accused of. <laughs> I end up being found not guilty of providing false information on a loan application because I didn't do it. The I had a mortgage broker who falsified a loan application. He admitted at trial, he signed my name to it, right? <laughs> but I, and this is where I do take uh, full credit, you know, I signed the closing package and I put it in the mail and it, it, whether it had false information that I knew about or not really didn't matter anymore. And I, at that point, took ownership, if you will, of everything within that packet. And that became mail fraud. And I was found guilty of mail fraud, bank fraud, wow. wire fraud, basically mortgage fraud for that reason and sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in damn. Beckley, West Virginia. And my kids, my teenage sons dropped me off on Valentine's Day, 2011 at the front gate of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute to start serving a 21 month sentence in federal prison. How did you handle being in prison and how did your family, how'd your kids handle it? It was, it was terrible. I mean, I, I, you know, and the worst part of it was the limbo that I was in because once I was charged, you know, and again, you, you can relate and some of your other guests can relate, you know, once you're charged, your life is pretty much on hold until there's resolution. And, you know, so for me, that was over a year process where I couldn't really work. I couldn't like, you know, I couldn't do anything, it felt like. And of course, my both my boys are struggling at this point, you know, as teenage boys. And I'm not married to their mom anymore at that point. And, and it was hard. But, on, I, you know, I'll never forget walking into that prison. You'll appreciate this. Uh, it's in the book. You have to read the book or listen to it. But the, the first guy that I meet when I get in is a guy, everybody's got a nickname in prison. And the first guy I meet is Pick and Roll. I'm oh, not nice. kidding you. That's nice. his name, Pick and Roll. <laughs> and so Pick and Roll looks at me and he's like, he's like, hey, you know, and he's an inmate, obviously. And so I've I've gone through the processing. And so now I'm in the prison and and he's like, How long are you here for? I'm like, 21 months, man. He's like, shit, that ain't even long enough to unpack your clothes. <laughs> you know, Right because away. so many of these guys are in there yep. for so long. And and look, I was scared. I was I scared. I was sad. And I was really pissed off. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. And you know what, though, Rex? It only took a few days to realize that I wasn't going to... I, I was pissed off about, you know, and again, I'm using air quotes, what had been done to me, right? And it took a matter of maybe two or three days to gain perspective. Number one, I figured out I wasn't going to survive this time in prison with that anger and bitterness. It was going to kill me. Number two, the first guy uh, after pick and roll that I met was a guy in the cell next to me. And he's, 
in his early 60s. He's black, and he got a 25-year sentence for a single gram of crack cocaine. Oh, my God. And he's on, like, year 23 when I meet him. He had had his entire life taken away, and I'm focused on, you know, I mean, we're selfish by nature, all of us, but I'm focused on what has happened to me, and I immediately get slapped in the face by the reality of real unfairness. And, you know, and it it allowed me to sort of settle down and recognize that in the weirdest way, I was the most well-prepared person for prison ever. Yeah, yeah. no, really, <laughs> you know, I was just thinking the same. 10 years on the street and 19 years clean and sober, I recognized that I could do this and that, in fact, it was going to be a learning and just human experience. I'm sure this will get into it, but how did you become a motivational force for other inmates uh, to overcome addiction while you were there? How'd yeah, well, you know, about? it is. a Yeah, it's attraction rather than promotion again, because I do, I do like to make the joke that I didn't all of a sudden say, you know, hey, dude, you look like you could lose some weight. Why don't you come work out with me? That's, it's not a good strategy yeah, for prison. Not in prison. Um, but, you know, what I really did, Rex, was I just started doing what I always had done, and that is that I started to run. You know, and, and there are about 500 guys in this prison, and it is a low-security facility in Beckley, West Virginia, and the vast majority were nonviolent drug offenders, you know, and and that's the way our country is. In the federal system in particular, you got over 80% of people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. And the irony is there's no, in the federal system, there is no AA, there's no NA, there's no, there's no... That's insane. There's no kind of recovery program. You can get a 20-year sentence for a drug charge and never get treated for your drug problem while you're in there. What you will get is near the end of your sentence, you get what's called drug education, <laughs> which if you take the class, it will give you like six months off of your sentence potentially. But the class is basically this. You suck, you're a leech on society and your family, don't do drugs. God. Like that's what the whole course boils down to. That's just brutal. And it's so insane. And so I actually did. I, I did start teaching addiction recovery classes while I was in prison, but I, they were actually health classes that I changed the curriculum. <laughs> and I started, I turned them into basically what amounted to informal AA meetings. Man, that's great. And, you know, and I, and I started to run every day. And people made fun of me. And this is, this is funny. I mean, I was a middle-aged white guy, still am. And, you know, people made fun of me, uh, like the most dubious choice I ever made in there is I started doing yoga a couple days a week on the softball field by myself. <laughs> and for any of the listeners, what for a, any of the listeners, what a great yeah, move. <laughs> no, for any listeners who are, who are thinking about going to federal prison, I do not recommend doing yoga <laughs> by yourself. But, um, but anyway, here's what happened. You know, after a couple months of my running, and I'll never forget the the day it happened, but uh, this guy, Kenny, uh, Squirrel was actually his name, he yells out across the rec yard. He's like, hey, running man, you going to come in for lunch? And like that is where the, the sort of the moniker running man came from. 
But slowly but surely, guys started to come up to me in, you know, the cafeteria line or whatever and ask me if I would basically teach them to run. And, you know, these are guys from all walks of life. West Virginia is probably 50-50 black and white in this prison. And, you know, all the white guys were meth heads and all the black guys were businessmen. (laughs) And I say that tongue in cheek, but I actually mean it. Most of the black guys were were dealers and Mm -hmm. not users. Most of the white guys were actual addicts. Um, But guys started to come up to me and just say... and. You know, when I got to Beckley, there were maybe three guys running every day on a regular basis. And when I left a year and a half later, I had a running group of 50 guys. And I, I run it with me every single day. And I had um, maybe 10 or 12 of them lost more than 100 pounds. Wow. Um, by when I left, I had 25 guys doing yoga with me on the Man, softball field beautiful. three days a week. That's you know, beautiful. and it wasn't because I ever promoted what I was doing. It's just because I did it. And these guys started to see, I mean, my life was just, I mean, I don't want to say it was better. We're all in the same place. And I had some haters. I had some, uh, you know, I was a white collar, again, air quotes, right. guy in a in prison. And there is a weird stigma that goes along with that. My biggest concern was like, what kind of tattoo am I going to get in prison? You know, what is a what do you get for mortgage fraud? Like an like an ink pen? I thought about getting a fountain pen on my arm. Get MF. Just, what, right? MF. <laughs> there we go. I could have put M M F. Flipped it. That's right. M F. Mortgage fraudster. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie Engel truly is an inspiration to me. If he can pull himself up from the literal gutter with a bullet-ridden car and a crack pipe to becoming an advocate for change at the top of his profession, then almost anyone can too. What strikes me about Charlie is that he owns his messy story instead of running from it. I'd imagine that trotting mile after mile after mile gives a person plenty of time to think about the good, the bad, and the ugly transgressions in their life. For those in recovery, attacking the road ahead is the best forward momentum someone can achieve one day at a time. What would you say to someone who knows that running and exercise would benefit their lives but just can't get over the mental hurdles? You know, it's such a great question. I I actually think about it all the time. And I have uh, just recently been asked to be uh, Deepak Chopra and I became friends years ago. And so I am now, it hasn't even been announced publicly. So this will be the first time I've actually said it out loud um, in public. But I am now the uh, ambassador for the Chopra Foundation for Addiction and Recovery. Congratulations, man. Thank you. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal for me because it's uh, part of the reason I gave you that answer is that my mission, (laughs) in a way, is relies on this mantra, and that is that if you don't feel good, you can't get well. You know, it's about mentally just getting it through your head that if I do this every day, you know, it really will get easier and. Also, the, the um, you know, look, I have a son who's almost four years clean and sober. And, you know, again, genetics play a role. And I tell him, I tell both my sons all the time, you know, never quit at a low point. Never quit anything at a low Don't quit a relationship or a job or sobriety or anything else because those those low moments aren't real. Like, they will pass if we just let them pass. And I think physical exercise, you know, exercise is that way. People, people go for their first run in five years and they feel like shit. Well, no kidding. But you're not going to feel that way all the time. You just have to keep doing it. Terrific. Terrific advice. Hey, so tell me this. What are you up to today, Charlie? Uh, where are you and how'd you handle the pandemic? I assume you were just out running every day. 
Yeah, you know the. I mean, so I'm I'm back in Durham. I've lived all over the country, but I got married again about eight years ago to just an amazing woman. And and in full disclosure, um, she is battling a really serious cancer and has been for a while. So we're, you know, my world has been a little small, even even apart from COVID. We're all I'm so of our sorry, buddy. Been a little, so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. But again, you know what? I I get to show up for this every single day and to be um, a supporter, a caretaker, all the things that I need to be and would be incapable of being if I was still, you know, using. And you and, get to you know, be. Think about that. You just said yeah. that. I get to be. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's not a burden. It's a gift, and I I would take it away from her in a second, you know, the cancer, but I, you know, I, I get to be fully present. I don't go hide in a bottle or a pill, and, you know, and I'm able to just be here and be present. And, you know, COVID is, um, she can't get vaccinated, so it's complicated. I'm vaccinated, but I have to be really careful about where I go and what I do and um, I am working on another book because, you know, I, I think there's a, I sort of touched on it earlier, but I think that uh, people in early recovery, when you go into addiction recovery, there should be more focus. Not, you know, there's a time for talk therapy and it's very important in the process, but physical health needs to be put first. <laughs> and I said it earlier, if you don't feel good, you can't get well. And so, I'm really working on a book through my own experience that will lay out the case for really focusing on physical health. I'm also vegan, have been for more than 20 years. You know, I'm I'm not a preacher on these things, but it is, you know, it's the way I've chosen to live and um it and it's made things good. You know, I'm I celebrate my sobriety every year by running the same number of hours to match the years that I've been sober. So this year, later this month, will be, you know, 29 hours of running. And, you know, that's my kind of party these days. Um, If you just put yourself out there and you tell the truth, opportunities, the right opportunities present themselves. Um, I'm heading to, uh, I am actually heading at the end of this month, July, I'm getting a chance to go down to Necker Island with Richard Branson and a small group and, and speaking to a bunch of people in the addiction space and advocating for some things around the Chopra Foundation and, you know, it just is, it's a fun journey, man. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even take the prison stuff back. You know, I got, I, I work with the Innocence Project, um, from time to time. Good for you. Um, I'm sure you know those guys or know who they are. A great friend of mine, Jason Flom is one of the founding board members. He has a great podcast, um, about wrongful incarceration, you know, and getting people out and, and I, I think it all comes back down to where we started. It's service based. Yeah. And the thing I say to myself, and I remind others, service makes you sound like you're being some generous, uh, you know, I don't know, goody two-shoes almost. I do it because I recognize that if I don't keep doing stuff for other people, that I put myself, it's a really selfish act. I put mm-hmm. myself at risk if I don't do those things. Man, that's beautiful. It's, it really is. I, and I'm, I'm with you. It, it makes me feel bad when I think back about all the years I spent just as a selfish asshole, 
you know, just only thinking about me. Wasn't until I got in trouble that I thought about how it was affecting everybody else. I mean, and uh, just that perspective. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for being here with me today on Charges. Your story and your effort are inspiring. And as someone else who's in recovery, you know, I want you to know my door is always open if you ever need anything. You're the man, Charlie. Thank you so much. Same here, brother. And it was, I can't tell you how excited I was to be here. And it, it was, you're really good at this. You should keep doing oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me. It's the guests. You guys come on here no, and crush it. Dude, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of podcasts. I, I can assure you, you're being, you're, I appreciate your humility, but it's, you know, doing these kind of things is a, it's another gift, you know, of experience and of being able to just have a conversation. And it's, it's, uh, you've got a really good platform here. And I, I look forward to, you know, spreading the word. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, pal. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Charges, sharing our run-ins with the law. Charges, athletes, entertainers, and brawlers. Charges, every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges, we came a long way from living lawless. Charges, sharing our run-ins with the law. Charges, athletes, entertainers, and brawlers. Charges, every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges, we came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, 
and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.